Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Welcome to the Green Innovation Forum on Tax Day. Uh, I'm Lisa Schaefer. I'm the Executive Director of the Sustainability Solutions Institute, formerly known as the Environment and Sustainability Initiative. Our institute is designed to capture the intellectual resources of UCSD and bring them to bear through interdisciplinary collaboration within the campus and with non-academic partners um, to help contribute to sustainability solutions. And we have three thematic areas within the institute. The first is integrated water and other resource management. The second is the built environment and sustainable communities. And the third is commercialization, clean tech, green innovation kinds of things that we're still sort of refining the right label for that one. Uh, Paul Linden, who's the faculty director of SSI, sends his regrets. He was not able to be with us tonight, um, but he will be back for the May Green Innovation Forum. So with that, I will turn to our program for tonight. Um, and our first speaker is Dr. Wesley Schultz, who is a professor of psychology at Cal State San Marcos. Thank you. Well, thank you all for coming out. Uh, thank you to the Institute, to Kristen and to Lisa for inviting me to come and speak. And I am going to talk today about the behavioral aspects of water issues, particularly related to conservation. And really, uh, moving from awareness and education and knowledge to uh, strategies that are effective at promoting change. Uh, about the presenter, I have a biography in the handout. Uh, I hold an academic position at Cal State, and I also have worked on a range of different applied projects across a number of different uh, topics and conservation areas. For me, uh, when I hear conservation, I think behavior. That is, for me, as a psychologist, conservation means behavior. It means doing something differently. Whether we're talking about reducing consumption, purchase decisions, landscaping issues, or even new technologies. And I know a lot of folks view conservation as a technological issue, but I would argue that even the most efficient technology used inefficiently can undermine conservation efforts. So for me, when, when I hear conservation and when I talk about conservation, I'm talking about behavior and I'm talking about doing something. From that perspective then, if we want to understand conservation behavior, looking at the psychological research then, the behavioral science uh, that has been conducted for the last hundred years can provide a good foundation from which to approach creating conservation programs and promoting behavior change. Psychology is simply the scientific study of behavior. And I know for many people when they see that there's a psychologist who's going to come and talk about conservation, there's the misperception that we work in clinical contexts, uh, hospital settings, counseling, and so forth. So I'm going to ask you, how do you feel about conservation? How does it feel when you, when you conserve? And to be fair, there are psychologists who do work in those clinical contexts, but there are also many psychologists who don't and who take this definition as the scientific study of behavior and use it across a range of topics. From the psychological research that's been conducted, we know that people act for reasons. 
Now, this isn't a particularly profound statement, right, to say that people act for reasons, but oftentimes we hear that behavior is mysterious, that people are irrational, that we can't understand or predict what people are going to do. And I would argue that from a psychological perspective, we can. Maybe the motives or the reasons for actions don't make sense to us. Maybe we think they're the wrong reasons, uh, but there are always reasons for behavior. Successful behavior change strategies then require that we understand what motivates the individual as well as the situational factors that can constrain behavior. And there are many examples of failed, and I would say even more examples, of untested programs and occasionally even boomerang effects. That is, well-intentioned efforts that produce behavioral changes opposite to what's intended. So what I want to do is to walk through some of the common strategies that are used to promote conservation. And I'm going to talk about three uh, initially. Education, uh, pricing, and awareness. And I'm going to be critical of all three. And as an academic, right, it, it's easy to be critical. And at the end, what I want to do then is talk about an alternative, a promising alternative that I think can uh, be used to promote conservation. So let me just quickly uh, walk through the, the three most widely used approaches to promote conservation. The first is education. Uh, we frequently hear that we're going to conduct an education campaign or that uh, we need to we need to educate people about what to do and when to do and how to do. From this approach, then, we just need to disseminate information. Whether it's in a brochure or a radio spot, public service announcement, billboard, website, however it is, we need to disseminate some information and increase knowledge. And while knowledge is important, we make a fundamental assumption here that people aren't doing what we want them to do because they don't know. This assumption turns out quite frequently to be wrong. People know a lot more than we give them credit for. I know that I should conserve water, but yet I don't always do it. And if you think back to that basic lesson of psychology that people act for reasons, this ignores that fundamental lesson. Just giving people factual information about what to do assumes that they want to do it and that there's a reason for them to do it. And consistently across behavioral domains, the research shows no to small effects. And in fact, in psychological research, we use an information-only condition as the worst case. It's our control condition. And then we evaluate successful strategies relative to that. From the Water Authority website, 100 ways to conserve. It's a lot of ways. Who's going to read that? <laughs> if you're not conserving, are you going to read it? If you're not interested in conservation, are you going to read this? The people who read this are those that do the 99 things and are looking for one more. <laughs> 51 things that we can do to save the environment. This is from Time magazine. Imagine that it didn't say 51 things we can do to save the environment, but 51 ways that we can reduce our shoe size. Well, I don't care about that. I'm not going to read that, right? But my point is that if you're not motivated, the education and information is not going to produce a change. But yet, it's seen as a fundamental element in our behavior change strategies. 
A second widely used tool for promoting conservation is price. And here the research is clear that cost can directly affect behavior. As the cost increases, people are motivated to save that cost. That unlike information and unlike education, cost directly affects behavior. There's a causal link there. But there are some problems, some side effects with pricing. And I've listed three here. One is specificity. The early hope in conservation programs was that if we could get people to engage in sort of these gateway behaviors, install compact fluorescence, or get them to do these small things, that then they would spill over into other areas of their lives. The next thing you knew, they'd be composting in their backyard because they couldn't help themselves, right? They, they had gone down that pathway and became... Uh, conservation-minded, but it turned out not to be the case that the behavior change, particularly those that are induced by, by pricing and cost, are very specific. Second is framing. Once we frame conservation as a transaction, that is, if you do this, then you will get this reward, now I'm going to look at all conservation behaviors from this transaction mindset. And potentially, then, it can undermine long-term changes as long as the price stays high, I'm motivated. Gas is $5 a gallon. I'm really motivated to conserve. I'm carpooling. Heck, I might even walk somewhere in Southern California, right? This is very unusual. Gas prices come down. Hmm. We lose that motivation. And in fact, it can undermine our prior intrinsic motivation for the behavior. A third commonly used approach to promoting conservation is awareness. Raise awareness about this issue. This is a crisis. This is a big problem. And in, individuals often will rally around a cause for a short period. One of the defining features of a crisis is it ends. And then we go back to the way that things were before. So if we frame it as a crisis, and then it continues for too long, these messages can potentially boomerang. And what happens when the crisis passes? <coughs> Also implicit in awareness campaigns is the idea that most people do the wrong thing. This is a big problem. Most people water their lawns. Well, most people have lawns, right? That's also implicit in that, in that message there. That the norm, the common practice is this undesirable behavior. But you should be different. And from psychology, we know that people don't want to be the deviant one. They don't want to stick out from the group. All right, so as I said, it's easy to be critical. So, all right, smart professor, if those things don't work or have limitations, what should we be doing? So let me offer a promising alternative, and that's one that's based on social norms. Conservation messages often mean deviating from the norm. You're asking people to do something that nobody else is doing. Well, who wants that? Who wants to have a home that looks dramatically different from everyone else's? So what we need instead is to promote community support, promote a message that says other people value conservation. If you don't, other people will disapprove of you, and other people are engaging in conservation efforts. We need to foster this norm, and there are a variety of ways that we can do it. Two useful elements here, and I'm not saying this is the only way to foster a conservation norm, but I think these two will do it. First, personal feedback in meaningful units. How much water do you use? How much water did you use today? I don't know. 
and in units that are meaningful for the individual and that are linked to specific actions so that I know that I did this behavior and it caused this effect. And with some regular frequency so that if I change my behavior, I see its direct impact on this. And second, a referent. Whether this referent is a personal goal, uh, an allocation from uh, um, a municipality, or a social norm that says this is what other people do. One of the first things my students do when I pass back their exams, so you got a 68 on your exam. That's meaningless, right? I don't know what that means. Is that a good score? They look to their neighbor. So what would you get? Right? They want that referent. They want to be able to judge their own behavior relative to someone else. So let me present some data. First is a field experiment that we did uh, at a local beach resort here in Southern California. And if you've stayed in a hotel or, or timeshare or condo in recent years, you've seen the growth of these conservation messages in the hotel. Help us conserve our natural resources. Do you need a fresh towel? If you'd like your towel replaced, please leave it in the basket. If you leave it on the rack, it tells us you want to reuse it. So it's a conservation message to reuse your towel. And often they'll have an environmental appeal to it. It saves so much water and it saves so much detergent and so forth. What we wanted to know is could we develop a different message, one that utilized this norms approach that I've mentioned. The rooms were quite nice, sort of an upscale hotel. And the message that we created said two things. One, other guests who stay in this hotel approve of conservation. And two, other guests who stay in this hotel, they do it. Two things. So many of our guests have expressed to us their approval of conserving energy. And when given the opportunity, nearly 75% of hotel guests choose to reuse their towels each day. And then the rest of it was a pretty uh, standard message similar to what you saw in the control. And we implemented these. We put them in uh, hotel and timeshare units in this resort. And importantly, we placed the message at the point that the behavior occurs. Too often, the messages are disconnected from the location that the behavior occurs. So you hear it on the radio. By the time you get home, it's disconnected from the behavior. So we put it in the location where the behavior occurs. And we analyzed data from 132 condominium units. We have separate data from, from the hotel, but they show the same results. And we randomly assigned the room to get one of our messages, either the norms message or the control message. And we looked at the towel use among guests who stayed in the different types of rooms. We counted how many towels came out. My lab is an exciting place, right? You get to work. <laughs> You get to count the number of towels that, that are coming out, dirty towels, mind you, of, of these hotel rooms. And what did we find? The data looks something like this. So here's our control message. On average, 2.3 towels came out of the room. The norm message, 1.7, which translated is a 25% reduction in the number of towels that came out of the rooms. And this is not 25% reduction relative to no message, right? They, there is an existing conservation message. It's saying 25% reduction relative to the existing message. Okay, so now let's extend this idea a little bit. And what I'm going to present next are data that come from an energy study that we did, but I think directly applicable to water. And it's based on this idea of providing individuals and households specific feedback. So like water, energy, you have a meter on your home that registers how much you've consumed. 
But we don't know how to read these things. We don't know where they're located. We just get the bill every month, two months, three months, however it comes. And it's difficult to decipher. So what we did is we read the meters on 290 households in North County, San Diego, and then we gave feedback to the households that says, this is how much you used. And we also gave them a reference. This is how much the average home of similar size in your community used. Now, some of the homes were above the norm, right? Some were above the average and some were below the average. If you're below the average, you're using less than your neighbors, theory would predict you're going to increase your usage, right? It's the opposite. It's this boomerang effect. It's this saying that everybody else is engaging in a consumptive behavior. That would be a problem for us. And so we wanted to do something to try and mitigate this effect. And we used an emoticon. It's a great way of saying we drew happy faces <laughs> and we drew sad faces on these cards. So if you used less than the average, you got the happy face. And if you used more than the average, you got the sad face. We distributed this information to households uh, over two consecutive weeks using door hangers. And I should say there are now uh, companies that are using this as a behavioral technology and trying to incorporate it into the billing system for uh, both water and uh, electric utilities. So for high consumers, these are people who used more than the norm, more than the average. If we give the descriptive only message, and what that's showing there is the baseline to follow up, they conserved, right? They used more. They got a message that says, hey, you're a pig. You're using more than your neighbors. And we see a reduction in consumption. Now we draw the sad face on it. So here's the feedback. You use more than your neighbors. And that's a bad thing. We get slightly more conservation. But what happens to the low consumers? Here's a message that says, here's how much you used. And it's less than the average. We actually see this boomerang effect. They, they increase in their consumption. They leave the lights on a little bit longer. They run the air conditioner a little bit more. But what happens if we give them the happy face? That's a good thing, right? What it does is it reinforces the fact that we value conservation and we can eliminate this undesirable boomerang effect. So to conclude, can we reduce consumption? Can we promote water conservation. From a psychological perspective, I say absolutely yes. But it's going to require new tools. We have to go about it in a different way than we have been. The education approach, the awareness approach, the pricing approach, they come with some substantial limitations. Will it happen overnight? Will it be an immediate switch? No, it's going to take time to create and foster these norms. So the price triggers, I think, can work but they come with some side effects and we need to be very careful with these. Information generally won't work, uh, although there has to be a base level of information. Even if you're very motivated, you have to have some knowledge and some information. So information then has a limited role in helping motivated people translate that into action. Awareness and crisis will work, but for, for a very short period. And I would argue that fostering social norms provides a very promising, long-term, sustainable solution. Thank you.
Our next speaker is Professor Robert Wilkinson, who's the director of the water program at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, you know, that talk resonates. I'd love to spend a little time talking about that, but I've got 20 minutes to run through mine. But I will say that really resonates with me and as well for teaching in the field of environmental studies. Uh, looking at the upside and the positive and the potential seems a, a lot more effective for students than explaining all the problems and getting the, the frown face there. So I'll take a lesson in that for teaching. Actually, one of my students, I want to thank Kristen, uh, was one of my most enthusiastic students in San Diego. I was very lucky to have her. So thank you for inviting me to, to uh, come down, Kristen. Here's a kind of a summary of, of my point on the value of water. Uh, this is from the uh, noted scientist Herb Stein. I started by thinking when, when the topic was the value of water, okay, you've got utility value and we've got market value and started thinking about traditional lines. But that's not where I'm going to go on the talk today. This is what I'll try to cover in, in the 20 minutes I've got. Our water challenge is just briefly, how does the water challenge drive some value questions? Climate change, which is changing the game altogether. I want to focus a little on energy and water, and I understand you've had some talks already on energy water links, so that may tie in for those of you who are participating in those talks. And then coupled water energy climate strategies is kind of where I'll try to take this. Uh, and I'm going to pitch throughout the notion that we've got to step back and, and think more in terms of whole systems and multiple benefits of different investments and activities as we think about value on both sides of the equation. So quickly through the water challenges. Every major water supply system in California and many other parts of the world as well uh, is overallocated. Now that's a bold statement, but if you think about the Colorado River situation and the people that have claims on that water versus what's there to actually take, we're on the 4.4 diet plan here in California. You think about the Delta issues, Northern California, the Klamath River, the Trinity River system. We're looking at taking dams out and trying to restore flows uh, and fisheries in those systems. Groundwater overdraft, uh, Eastern Sierra, Owens Valley, Mono Lake. So go through any of the major systems. And we really have systems, legal systems, political systems, economic systems, that in various ways have claims or interests in those waters that far exceed the actual water that we've got. So we're going to have to learn how to live with less and do more and restore systems. Now to benchmark this, go back 50 years, and this is only 50 years in the living memory of some of us and, uh, and the history books for others, but this is a genuine plan from 50 years ago to replumb North America. You're looking at the uh, water collection region up here. Transfer, they don't need any, we'll just transfer it right on through. Notice the distribution and how wonderfully binational the idea was then. We'll just send plenty right on across and maybe maybe some over here too. This is an optional setup. Serious plan, Parsons Engineering. This is the actual plumbing. Now just off for a moment, when we think about the value of water, this is going to tie to my theme on the value of energy. Does anybody remember the nuclear energy was going to be too cheap to meter time? That was for real. My dad was a mechanical engineer and that generation at that time really was working with a, a notion that the constraint from an energy standpoint was, well, if in fact energy is too cheap to meter, it really doesn't matter if you're going to pump it over mountains and long distances. That's not a constraint. There may be other constraints, but that really isn't a problem. And that led to the way we thought about water and the value of water in very important ways that we're grappling with right now in terms of existing supply systems. This is another uh, way to look at this, this is total extractions, the latest uh, release. 
there's always a lag because it's tough to get all this data from USGS. The mountain on the left is extractions mainly for agriculture. The little mountains on the right, interestingly, are mainly for thermal power plant extractions. And that's an important point in terms of the water value for energy production. I'm going to talk about it both ways here in a minute. And globally, we've already taken a significant fraction of the water that's available, and that's growing. I just came back from China, spending some time in China on climate and water. Uh, it's just one example uh, of another place where there are serious constraints with water. Uh, here's a snapshot of what that looks like in terms of water stress and vulnerability globally. And when you start to think then about the impacts of climate change, uh, in some of these areas it may exacerbate it, in a few it may actually help, but in most cases it looks like the problem's going to get even more complicated. So that's a snapshot on water just to frame this on climate. John Holdren, who a year ago in Washington made this statement, the world is already experiencing, and then I have it in subquotes there, dangerous anthropogenic interference in the climate system. The question now is whether we can avoid catastrophic interference. John has now been appointed the White House Science Advisor, head of OSTP, um, one of the most knowledgeable uh, people in the field whom I've had the privilege to know. Why do I have that dangerous anthropogenic interference in quotes? Any of the students here pick that one up? I have a hand on the right. And your students, so you go ahead. It's quoted in the Framework Convention on Climate Change. Exactly. It's in the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change from 1992 in Rio. Did George Bush Sr. sign that on behalf of the United States? Yes, he did. So what's referenced here is what we are, at least in theory, bound to, to avoid is this dangerous anthropogenic interference. And John's point is we've already failed. We need to take that seriously. And I think a growing uh, number in the science community would, would tend to agree with that statement. Our new Nobel laureate Secretary of Energy, uh, Stephen Chu, said the real economic disaster is in the making for our children. Steve's made a number of very potent comments on climate change already since he's been in. This is how I would characterize the last eight years of US climate policy. <laughs> Honestly, I was holding my punches for a number of years, thinking it was inappropriate for an academic to say things. And I, I, I'm serious in my classes and all, and I've kind of given up on that. I think telling the truth is important. And truthfully, we did reject a lot of science and intelligence, important information, and we're paying dearly for that rejection. This was really a, a huge mistake, the way we handled uh, climate and other science uh, issues over the last eight years. So it's a welcome change, I, I think, to see who's going in and different agencies in the position of the current administration. We also have the governor who helpfully declared that the debate is over. And so <laughs> we're moving on in California. And uh, I do give him credit, because I do think that has moved things along in a very important way in California. The very first sentence of the California Global Solutions Act is, global warming poses a serious threat to the economic well-being, et cetera. The number one cause of action at the Supreme Court for California's case was the water impact on California. So the value of water is perceived, at least in, in California policy and now at that level, as a, a key argument, the impacts on water for uh, concern about climate change. Take another noted environmentalist, Alan Greenspan. Can be very little doubt that global warming is real and man-made. Here's a zinger. Spewing CO2 into the atmosphere is as much a violation of property rights as my dumping refuse into my neighbor's yard. For those lawyers in the crowd, that kind of would ring a bell in terms of liability for, for climate. And then 
I had a chance to go back and give a talk to the uh, Center for Naval Analysis, and they released a very important report. The uh, URLs on the bottom there in yellow, Security and Climate. Uh, .cna.org. And this is a group. It's it's all branches of the U.S. military and a lot of the intelligence folks. Very concerned now about climate change, and water is again bubbling up, pardon the pun, as one of the top issues for the reasons for concern of climate change affecting national security in a number of ways. Not the only one, but an important one. So what will this mean for, for uh, water? What does climate change mean for water? I want to assert that pattern changes are going to be at least as important as total amounts, even if we get precip that's roughly the same as it has been in the past, if we get changes in patterns. Everybody's talked a lot about snowpack, and that is an important one. If we get more as rain and less as snow, that makes a big difference. Noah Knowles, who, while he was here uh, at San Diego at Scripps uh, as a postdoc, did one of the most important images. That's the Central Valley. Uh, and there have been some since, but I put this one up to give him credit because he really did a communication job with the elected officials in California looking at it. This is one model run with one set of assumptions, but it's, it's, a, it's a good one. Uh, but it really puts the message across that we're looking at a radical decline in snowpack in California under climate scenarios. Um, Mike Dettinger, also here at Scripps, has done some really helpful work. And this, at first blush, this is Precip, Northern California. And you can see it's definitely going to get wetter or drier <laughs> over the next century. A lot of people say, that's really unhelpful. You know, why can't the scientists tell us which way it's going to be? I actually think that's very helpful. What that says is you better plan for both. You better plan for systems that might be drier, might be wetter, might oscillate between the two. That's the reality. That is helpful information. And if we can refine it one direction or the other, terrific. But in the meantime, we've got to find robust strategies that are resilient in the face of uncertainty and potentially increased uh, extreme events on top of it. And this kind of uh, is another snapshot from IPCC. It just shows that California is right kind of at that point between the wet and dry projections and there's a lot, I won't go into this, a lot into it, but this is the, the current thinking, at least from IPCC, about we're wetter, we're drier. All right, now let me tie the two together. The California Energy Commission uh, worked on a report, the Integrated Energy Policy Report, and came out with a figure of 19% of California's electricity goes to the water system. That's all phases, and I'll get to that in a second, but all steps, not just pumping. And about a third of our non-power plant natural gas that is much, much higher than anybody had imagined uh, going into this analysis. And I was part of the team that worked on this, and we were all surprised at the magnitude. But that's a huge amount of electricity into water. The good news is that a great deal of that is wasted, and so it can be conserved in whichever way you want to use the term, but we've got an opportunity there. One quick example, just to do a little bit of arithmetic, that red line is the state water project, and that's the source of a portion of the water that comes down to this part of California. It keeps on going as part of the Metropolitan Water District's canal and, and uh, mingles with the Colorado River water. Here's all the pumping plants on that system. Here's half of one pumping plant. This happens to be the biggest pumping plant in the world, that set of bays and the equivalent one on the other side. It looks like a dam for those that have been hydroelectric dams, but it's the opposite. Those are motors driving pumps, putting water up over just under 2,000 foot of lift over the Tehachapi Mountains from the Central Valley to Southern California. And if you run all the numbers and add up the incremental amounts of energy at each point and account for energy recovery and all those sorts of things down to the end of the line, you get to some figures in terms of the energy input into water. Another way to look at the value both of energy and water 
Plotting that out, this is kind of interesting. You've had an interesting debate down here in, in Carlsbad, Southern California, on ocean desalination. The Carlsbad figure is coming in right about the same as my estimate for the governor's task force in desalination, which is about 4.4 thousand kilowatt hours uh, per acre foot. 4.4 thousand. Um, there's another estimate slightly lower, uh, but put it somewhere in that range. That's ocean desal for a reference point. All of the red bars are imported water. This is the Colorado River aqueduct, raw water coming into the basin, all these other different points on the state water system. So you can see we have some places right now at the end of the East Branch that are well in excess raw water to ocean desalination right now, very energy intensive water. That compares to groundwater, even tainted groundwater with salts and nitrates that's being treated with reverse osmosis and then served as, uh, as, as high quality water. And interestingly, recycled water. So taking water, after we've taken it from one part of the state to the next and so forth, and treating it to legal discharge requirements and then dumping it in the ocean versus finding beneficial uses, about 60% of the oil refineries in Southern California are now unrecycled, a lot of landscape, and it's growing. Our campus is all on reclaimed water, works great, been doing it for years. So you've got a very interesting set of options for reusing water that are much less than these, and that needs to go into the calculus of the value. And I got efficiency at zero. I've been criticized it ought to be a negative number, but I'm going to leave it at zero for now. And that's important because a lot of the things that were just described in terms of behavior and the rest come in at zero. I just wanted to put this up. Even with advanced treatment, RO technology, reverse osmosis, we're coming in with much better energy numbers for a lot of this uh, groundwater and reuse than throw it away and get some more. This is a snapshot of what the energy, of what the different water supply mixes are in Southern California to figure out what's on the margin. This is some work that I'm just about to go out with with the Natural Resources Defense Council looking at this in Southern California. And this is a plot of the energy intensity just to give you kind of a, a scheme. And it's all pretty energy intensive. This is where some of that really energy intensive water is. And this is what the ocean desal will look like in terms of some of the service areas. Now, one of the important things is if you save water here at the end use, you do landscape retrofit, you fix leaks, you change the toilet, what have you, you're not only saving water at site, you're saving all of those steps in pumping it, and depending if it's indoor and turns into wastewater, you're saving all these steps. So we've worked up a methodology, and this is what they're using at the state now, to quantify these energy inputs and figure out the value of water and energy combined. Quickly, on the power side, uh, we've, we've faced some very interesting constraints of the amount of water needed to produce power in conventional ways. And the conventional way to produce power, uh, electric power, is centralized power plants that have cooling systems. What that says is you're actually throwing away a lot of energy with the cooling system. And the spiffy way to do that is use a lot of water. So in many cases, then, we're tossing a lot of water, not ocean-cooled, but if it's inland. Um, and so we've got issues with that. Some of you will recall the heat wave in 2003 in Europe that claimed on the order of 30,000 people. The other thing it did was cause a uh, scale back and even shutdown on some of the centralized power facilities, in particular some of the nuclear plants in France. Of course, they had an arrangement with Italy to sell power, so they cut the Italians off and they were still okay. But that's another question. Water actually, in terms of availability, is important in terms of power production in many parts of the world. We had a similar problem in 2007 with one of the Tennessee Valley Authority nuclear plants. So water constraints for energy, energy constraints for water. Thinking about value, I guess my point is we've got to think about it in an integrated way. And as we look forward, 
for different energy sources. Here's a plot some of my grad students did, and I won't go into it, but just to give you a sense of the variability of the amount of water it takes to use different forms of energy using different forms, of different types of technologies, and it ranges from very little to quite a bit, and with some surprises in there. Bioenergy is not a big surprise. Geothermal was a surprise. It uses a lot more depending on the type than we had realized. So, lots of energy choices, lots of water choices. The energy choices have water implications and vice versa, and they're all going to be affected by climate change, and they will all affect climate change. So, to my solutions. This is one good news bit. This is the official state water plan for California water supplies for the next quarter century. Just let me point out, the biggest new water supply for California, about 3 million acre feet a year, uh, at the high-end estimate is urban water use efficiency. That's the biggest new supply for California. You get down here to surface storage, and we're fighting over some of these numbers, and it's looking more like that or, or less. Uh, that's the big dam fight, and that fight will continue. People will agree to disagree for a long time on that. Very few people disagree that it makes sense to fix the leaks and improve urban water use efficiency. Uh, this, is, this is Department of Water Resources data. I think it's probably conservative, actually, on these. Then you've got uh, groundwater, I'll talk about that very briefly, and then recycled water. So recycled stormwater capture and groundwater and efficiency are, are really the, uh, the sources. Good news is those from a climate standpoint are really helpful as well. So here's the waste e equals opportunity, and you can see that pretty much everywhere in California and beyond. Here's a lot of the technologies that we can use to do something about it. A lot of people say we're sitting on the solution. I'll give you just a minute on that one. Big amounts of water. There's a lot of focus on irrigation systems. I think that's great and controllers. I do think, though, we've got to pay a lot of attention to what we plant, how we plant it, how we do with soil, as well as what we're watering so we're not planting the dumb things and then trying to water it efficiently. So it's an integrated package there as well. Here's a cute one. Just looking now at stormwater capture, much bigger than a lot of people realize. This is a particular area in the Chino Basin on the Santa Ana watershed just north of us here. And let me just step through. The red is the urbanized, impermeable surfaces. The uh, purple and, uh, and green uh, and blue are uh, different forms of agriculture. 75 up to 93. And you can see what happens there. So you get a tremendous amount of impervious surface and water that used to drop in and recharge the groundwater is now blasting off to the ocean and trapezoidal channels and mobilizing a lot of Stuff. This is actually roads, not even the channels, because it's not getting into the ground. This is kind of some of the, uh, the simple solutions that really do work in terms of recharging re groundwater. And what would that mean for California? We started looking, this is the project I did with the uh, Natural Resources Defense Council recently, just looking from a climate standpoint, how much energy could you save and how much uh, greenhouse gas emissions could you reduce by capturing and recharging more water just with the stormwater management just in Southern California and just with subsets of what we could look at. Some very impressive numbers actually. So that's another kind of good news opportunity story that has to do with the value of rainwater in Southern California. And just to point out, we, we talk a lot about, about the state project and some of these. That's a small slice of California's water. The big ones, groundwater and local projects, really do matter. So this is not a trivial exercise on this side. So my stirring conclusions. Commander Ravel and Roger Wagner, who I uh, have tremendous respect for, said on the order of 20 years ago, 20 years ago, governments at all levels should reevaluate legal, technical, and economic procedures for managing water resources in the light of climate changes that are highly likely. They were way ahead of their time. 
We're talking a lot now about adaptation, but we're thinking levies and whatnot. Their point was you've got to think about your legal and institutional systems as well, and I think they were exactly right, and we've got a lot of work to do to rethink our systems. We need to develop and implement integrated whole system approaches to water and energy management. Just a quick example, this was the decoupling back in the 70s uh, in California on, in this case, energy, but it's focused on electricity and where we would have gone otherwise. I think we can do that in a lot of other areas. So we need to tap multiple benefits, and we should maintain flexible systems and change circumstances. There's, there's my characterization of our dilemma. We need to step back and get perspective. And I'll close with my famous uh, Winston Churchill quote, people and nations behave wisely once they've exhausted all other alternatives. And that's where I think we are. Thank you. Uh, we have now two five-minute response um, presentations by um, two more distinguished experts. So the first respondent is Professor Richard Carson, who is in the Department of Economics here at UCSD and uh, former chair of the department. Thank you. I think it's interesting to step back uh, from these two presentations and, and ask the question uh, about the value of water. If, if water is so valuable, often said to be priceless, how does society price it? And I think if we really think deeply about that, we, we can ask the question, how does San Diego price it? Does anybody uh, have any vague notion of uh, what the price per gallon here in San Diego is? Yes? About a third of a cent. Right. It's just about right. A third of a cent. <laughs> it's little surprise that we get so little action um, in terms of conserving things. So one of the main reasons that's often given for pricing water so low is that it's a necessity, something that people have to have. But the amount of water that you need as a necessity is to live is maybe a gallon a day. We can be really generous and use various official definitions that include flushing toilets and cooking food and whatever. And we get up to about 15 gallons a day. Um, San Diego's daily per capita uh, use is about 180 gallons a day. Typical single-family household uses about 10,000 gallons. Um, in some ways, we can really sort of fix things. Um, and one of the ways, and, and having now observed, I guess, 40 years of research on water, there really has been only one way that has been consistently shown to reduce water demand, and that is to actually increase the price. We can do it indirectly by putting in fairly expensive technological fixes that cause the, the prices to rise. We can raise the prices. Um, but at this point, there have now been hundreds of studies. So what do those studies on average show? That if you raise the price 10%, you decrease uh, consumption of water by about a little over 3%. And that's in the short run. In the long run, you reduce consumption by, if you raise price about 10%, uh, you reduce consumption by a little over 6%. Uh, and that's pretty, that's pretty consistent. What else do you show? Uh, the things that San Diego is talking about rationing water is one of the most ridiculous and stupid things that one can ever imagine in a water system. Uh, 
this is a case where <laughs> the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California is prepared to deliver water at a much higher price, we should just simply pass that on. So, I mean, we're fooling ourselves in terms of getting the system to respond until we're prepared to basically price water accordingly. So one of the things is to sit back and say, there really are three perspectives on how you price water. One of those has to do with the historical cost of the city, and that leads to large fixed charges, which San Diego uses. Uh, your typical water user here is paying over two-thirds of their bill as a fixed charge and a very small per-gallon amount. Uh, the other way you can think about it is the cost of acquiring new supplies. Okay, and that's how you should be pricing the water because that's what you're paying at the margin. Uh, you can also ask, what are people willing to pay for the water? That gives you an upper bound that cities should shoot for. You could readjust the structure here in California to have an increasing block system with A, more blocks than San Diego has, B, bigger jumps in the cost, and C, a much lower fixed charge. This would actually help the low-income households. They would be paying on average less than they're currently paying. And so the notion that changing the water rates and increasing the water prices hurt, hurts the poor is simply a lack of imagination on how to adjust the rate structure. Uh, let me just, just finish by saying a lot of the discussion that goes on now seems to have information or social norms or other things as a substitute and technology as a substitute for thinking about pricing. Uh, therein, I think, lies most of the problem with the debate. The, two, the different measures are actually complements. So it's easy to look and say, look, information works much better if you raise the prices. Social norms actually work much better if you raise the prices. We're all in this together. So the city needs to adopt multiple measures, but it's hard not to use price as one of the main components of a policy that has to deal with the long-term water situation that California faces. There's probably nothing harder than asking an academic to only talk for five minutes, so thank you, Richard. Um, and our final respondent is Brian Bjorndahl, who is a local eco-entrepreneur. Welcome. Well, I took notes on um, what the uh, uh, three professors said, and uh, let me just comment on those as a, as a layperson and a, a citizen and as a um, someone who's trying to make a difference in the water business. I think the value of water is uh, an amazing topic, and it's certainly very hard to just, uh, address in a, in a short lecture series. But uh, one thing I'd like to point out is that when we talk about uh, energy and water and the relationship, we also uh, talk about the price of food as a result of talking anything to do with water. Um, I'd also point out that with energy and energy policy and all the things that we need to solve in terms of energy policy, there are replacements for energy. 
There are, you know, solar energy can replace fossil fuels, for example. There are no replacements for water, none. It's necessary for all the things that, you know, I don't need to repeat here. The other thing that I'll point out is that there's no more water available. The water that's on the planet is all the water that there is. Uh, it's the same amount of water that's been on the planet since there was one person walking around. And now we're sharing it with, what, six billion people. So that is a phenomenal challenge as to how do we uh, take something that there is no alternative for and share it as the population grows and continue to uh, supply our needs. I think in uh, some of the presentation uh, comments here, uh, conservation is real key. Uh, what I was surprised in some of the data here is the, uh, in, in California, I thought that the impact on agriculture and industry on uh, our water use was much higher. Um, I'd heard reports that we could save four to five times as much as we currently save and it still wouldn't have an impact because really it's an agricultural and industry usage problem in terms of the amount of energy that's, t I mean, water that's taken out of the system. Um, in terms of price, we'll talk a lot about that. It does have a tendency to be uh, regressive and that is, you know, punishing the poor or the people who can least afford it. If it isn't on their direct water bill, it will be in their food bill because if prices get raised for agriculture because they have to pay more water for food, I mean, for to grow food. Um, another, while I'm talking about agriculture, uh, biofuels that use water to grow fuels that turn into fuels uh, don't make any sense at all. Um, that, just, that argument just needs to be shut down as quick as possible because you can't grow plants and then turn them in a, a, and, and make any uh, sense there. Um, in my last couple of minutes here, I'll, I'll point out two things, that this is a really big, challenging problem. We um, essentially, years ago, after World War II, in, invented or uh, I guess used the peace dividend of World War II and made our highway system, our energy system, and our water system, uh, put it in place, and we think it's free. Essentially, it came for free. And now we're having to re-engineer all that and figure out what is the true cost. I would ask you all to write down on the, your corner of your program there how much you pay for water each month. I bet less than half of you can. Okay? It's less than you pay at Starbucks. Now, there's a comparison that we ought to take into account. Uh, my last comment is um, a, very, a very key one, stormwater uh, recapture and reuse of water and reclaim water, it's an excellent policy. If you think that the water that's coming from the Colorado River is clean water after it's come through Las Vegas and arrived here, you're mistaken. So that is a policy that makes all kinds of sense because the water quality standards are so high that it is so pure by the time it reaches us. I don't know anybody in the United States that's got sick from toxic water. Um, off the tap anyway. Now it does happen, but I don't know anybody who has. So that's a key policy that was going to have to be utilized more. And instead of channeling it in, in concrete culverts out to the ocean, it has to be put back in the ground. And there were many examples and some good examples I've shown how that's done. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.